You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Friday, July 10, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by Raul Pell, our CEO and co-founder from Little Cayman. But first, Peter Cooper with today's stories. Thanks, Ash. Bond yields are on the move again. And even though the five-year Treasury yield hit a record low, we're still seeing some flattening of the yield curve as investors are rushing to safety on the long end of the curve. Meanwhile, the producer price index continues to tell a deflationary story. The BLS today released new data for June that was way below expectations. Month over month was expected to be 0.4%, but came in at negative 0.2%. And in other news, as banks are set to release their earnings for Q2, all eyes will be on their loan loss provisions. These reports come out next week, but predictions are already making their rounds on Wall Street. The estimates from Bloomberg show no improvement in loan loss reserves for major banks. And the S&P fixed income team went even further, projecting up to $2.1 trillion worth of losses through 2021 in a report released yesterday. But the dominant narrative continues to be the coronavirus. Yesterday, the U.S. was pushing up against the threshold of 60,000 new daily cases. And it was only two weeks ago that we broke above 40,000, the highest count we've had since the start. Texas, Florida, Arizona, and California, and other states in the Sun Belt are all suffering the greatest acceleration in cases and hospitalizations, taxing each of these states' healthcare systems. Even so, state officials are demonstrating reluctance to return to widespread lockdowns. With an epidemic that is becoming more politicized by the day, many of these governors are under pressure from the Trump administration to keep blazing forward with reopening the economy and opening up schools next month. And while hospitals are bursting at the seams, deaths are also trending upwards. In Texas, Florida, Arizona, and California alone, there have been 1,722 deaths in the past seven days. This could be a prelude for what's to come. Some of these states are the most populous in the nation, hitting their daily records and confirmed deaths all throughout the week, and this acceleration could end our consistently declining death counts nationwide. This is something we'll have to keep our eyes peeled for to understand just how dire the situation is. And with that, let's go to Ash and Rao. Ash, I know you had a fascinating conversation about COVID-19 with Dr. Kayvon Majarid, which we just released free to YouTube. I know the audience will love it. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks, Peter. Welcome back, Raoul. Good to be here, Ash, as ever. It's Friday. It is makes it a happy day for me. Yes, for all of us. Rao, how about the uh, video that Peter just mentioned that we released today uh, about the COVID vaccines? Look, if you remember, I think it was on the Real Vision Daily Briefing a few weeks ago after I spoke at a private event with Neil Ferguson and um, a vaccine developer at Imperial College in London. He said the same kind of things. You know, how little we know, how new this all is how large the unknowns are really, and also how long it takes. So even with a superhuman effort, 
it's not this year's event. And I thought that was a really fascinating thing. I, I just thought it was very useful to get a factual-based understanding of what is going on, what this is, what it's about. Because there's far too much noise about this, and people just for some reason are not receptive to the reality of what this is, which is a global pandemic with no current solution for a coronavirus, of which there's never been a vaccine developed for a coronavirus that has lasted. So these things are real, and we can't pretend they don't exist. You can have different viewpoints on how you deal with it. You can have different viewpoints on the economic impact. But the virus is the virus. You can even have a different viewpoint in where it came from. It doesn't matter. The point is, is what does this all mean for us? And I've spent, I mean, I spent a huge amount of time looking at this. Um, you know, I have, I was very early in this and understanding what was likely to come. I've been following the countries outside of the US and we're seeing issues where Hong Kong is having to close schools again and and all of the things that I predicted a while ago are happening, which is that places that opened have to close again. We've seen it in Spain, there's a whole region of Catalonia. We've got a problem in Hong Kong. We've got a problem in various countries. We've got countries that reopened earlier. Um, I think it was, uh, th I think somebody said it was Slovakia. They've got a big problem. They opened their borders. And before you know it, they've got another huge virus wave. And that's happening in many, many places around the world. What that means, again, take all the politics out of it. I'm not interested in anybody's view about the politics. What I'm interested in is, what does it do to economic growth? So when you look at the high-frequency data, you can see that, for example, Hong Kong retail sales, mobility, and other things have all ratcheted down again. We've seen the same in other places. We've seen Melbourne, Australia has now got problems. Retail sales come down again, economic growth comes down again, because people are fearful, which was always my point. You can argue all day whether they should be fearful or not. Again, it's irrelevant for what we need to look at, which is economies. The reality is, is the fear of getting ill or making somebody ill drives human behavior. And that human behavior drives economic impact. And so it's a real thing, and we're seeing it across all the high-frequency data, where the data was recovering and is now all tipped over. And that's happening around the world. And interestingly, when you get to the United States, you've seen, obviously, more restrictions coming back into Texas, for example, and Florida, of varying degrees. So you've seen the mobility, sales, and other numbers come off their peaks again. But it's also happened in New York, which is non-related, which is human behavioral. So we're seeing a definitive slowdown that is early, but is happening. The other thing that I follow is there is a lot of debate, and we see it in the comment section, about deaths. Well, it doesn't kill anybody. Again, I don't think that's the most important thing. The human behavioral function is the most important thing in this. But deaths are real. So there is something called Simpson's Law, I think. No, Simpson's Paradox. Paradigm or paradox? You know this. Simpson's paradox, that's right. So what, what does Simpson's paradox mean? Because I want to explain and then show a couple of charts about it. 
Yeah. So, so Simpson's paradox is a statistical phenomenon that's been uh, around, well recognized for fifty years. If you go up to Wikipedia, you'll see all kinds of crazy vector algebra describing it. But the bottom line, the simple explanation is this: if you're aggregating data and rolling it up from different areas, and there are different variables that have different attributes, it is very easy to confuse, misidentify, misattribute, and otherwise error when you're trying to figure out the causal arrow and the direction it points when you look at the data. If you want to think about it in a very simple way, you could sort of think about it in the context of accounting. If you have two different factories in two different countries, and those countries have different variables, different parameters, you can misassume or misidentify what you think is a cause that isn't a cause of a particular phenomenon when you roll up the data. So if you remember, go back a couple of months and the case count in the US was low and several of us who look at the data at a granular level, so Remy, uh, who works in the Globe Macro Investor, was a co-founder of Real Vision, had started pointing out, oh, some of these states in the United States are looking complex, that we might see that RO has gone above one and we're starting to see case counts increasing. And everybody said, case counts are falling. What are you worried about? But what happens is within that paradox is because New York was falling so fast in New Jersey, it was hiding the rise of the others. But when those numbers stop falling, i.e. they get to zero or a low, lower number, the other numbers suddenly explode and the overall case count in the United States grew. That's happening in the death data right now. So if you look at the first chart, this is the um, COVID death seven-day rolling average for Texas, Florida, Arizona, and California. You can see this is what's a, either a second wave or a continued first wave. However you want to call it, it's irrelevant. We're seeing a very sharp rise in case growth. Okay. But where are the deaths, everybody says? Because here again, everybody's looking at the aggregated death rates for the United States, which is driven by the massive fall in New York and New Jersey death rates in some of the Northeast states. So take that out, because it's going to get overwhelmed, much as the other data did. So if you look at the second chart, this is the seven-day confirmed with a 25-day lag of deaths. And deaths are following by 25 days in those states. So it's suggesting that just within the next month, we're going to be start to see 3,500 deaths a day out of those states. So these numbers are going to change dramatically for the United States as a whole. And these are just the big states. There's plenty of other states, because I think we're now at something like 42 states with an RO above, um, R naught above one. So there's a real issue coming. The market and the narrative is not prepared for the vast rise in death rates that is probably going to come. Again, there's no certainty here, but it's highly probable. We're hearing, and I've been talking about this for the last month here, that Houston and other places are starting to fill up almost all available hospital beds. And that is the knock-on effect, because you, you fill up hospital beds. As we know, we progress treatments so people in hospitals die less than they, than they did. And certainly the death rate has fallen. But what happens is as hospitals start filling up, then other injuries like a car crash, people start dying. So you get excess deaths as well. And that's not counted in this data. But overall, we should see the death rates rise. So I think it's really complicated. 
What's also complicated is the world we live in where different countries have had different responses. So Europe, I think, has made a big mistake. So Europe took the pain and they really locked down. That's the UK, France, um, Italy, Spain, etc. And then what happened is they gave into the economic pressure of summer holidays and they opened their borders. So now all the beaches in Spain are being filled with a mix of tourists and nobody's being tested. Now, if the RO of that group is higher than naught, uh, higher than one, then the probability is you'll start off another round of virus growth. And I don't know the stomach the Europeans have to fight that battle again, let alone how they're going to deal with it on an economic level. That will probably play its way into the data come September. So that's something I'm concerned about. Cayman is a really interesting example. I wrote a big tweet about this. Is Cayman's done a phenomenal job. We're a small island. So they saw what was coming, they closed the borders. Then they tested as many people as possible, and we're in the top five for nations who've tested the highest percentage of their population in the world. We've tested about 40%. We've now got, we had one death, who was a cruise shipper who came in. We've got six cases, all asymptomatic. The viral loads are extremely low. And it looks like we've had no cases now for seven days. So I think we've pretty much won the battle, not the war. The war is, how do you open your border? And I can't see us opening our borders without testing at borders and instant testing. So for somebody who flies to Little Cayman from Grand Cayman right now, they have to take a test at the airport. They have to be held for two hours while the test results come through, then escorted to the plane um, in a very tight way because there's no COVID here in Little Cayman. Grand Cayman's going to have to do the same. But because what Grand Cayman did was no magic. They just followed the WHO guidelines. And it's, I think, somewhat preposterous that Cayman has done so well because they followed the WHO guidelines. The US, on the other hand, decided to leave the WHO instead, <laughs> which is kind of a, a word, weird way of going about it. But again, there's no point any of us arguing about what the government responses are, were they right or were they wrong. Our job into markets is to deal with what's at hand. And what's at hand is the US has a full pandemic viral outbreak that is not going to stop for a significant period of time because, you know, mask wearing, social distancing, they're just not structurally in place across the United States. Europe probably has another lagged rise in the virus to come. And we're seeing pockets around the world. And again, from my perspective, is that means that the V-shaped recovery idea is dead. Right. You know, and and the point you make, we are completely driven by the data. That's what we're looking at. Uh, and to me, the most single useful bit of data is the number of new cases per day, which is just crested above 60,000. So Simpson uh, paradox effects notwithstanding, we are now consistently printing the highest number of new cases per day uh, of the pandemic. Now, people will say that there are some testing effects here, meaning that as we test more, we are, of course, getting more positives. While that's true, the rise in the rate of infection in the Sun Belt, in, this, in the states that you just mentioned, California, Texas, Florida, and Arizona, suggests that there is true organic growth in the new case count rates here in the United States. Yes. I mean, some of those states are now 20% plus positivity rates, which is extremely concerning. 
Um, that's the kind of rates that you got early on in the virus when you were just testing ill people. So it's showing that th th there's a really big problem. And again, we can talk all day about COVID, but the reality is, is what does it mean for markets? I thought, interesting, you know, I've been looking, as most people know, um, I've been looking at three phases to this whole event. One was the panic phase into March, then there was the hope phase, which we're arguably still in now, and then there is the insolvency phase, which is when the economic reality of a slow economy for at least another year, maybe 18 months, comes through and companies start defaulting. So we're seeing companies defaulting. We're seeing, um, who is it? Brooks Brothers went under today. There's, you know, I think Yelp are talking about 50%, almost 50% of all restaurants have now closed. I mean, the numbers are enormous and they're not coming back. So I think that's a, a huge issue to come. And I think as ever, the bond market gave us the signal first, bond yields started falling. They bounced a bit today, but bond yields started falling in the United States. The UK went to negative five-year bonds, the lowest in three or 300 years of UK gilt history. But the US particularly, we're starting to see bond yields fall. The other thing people are missing when we're all watching Tesla with smirks on our faces and Amazon with awe on our faces is look at the banks. The banks, have they arguably broke down yesterday. We're still around that trend line. But the regional banks, the main banking index, so the KRE, the XLF, they look bad. Companies, the big indebted companies like AT&T and General Electric look bad. So there's something beneath the surface I've been telling people about that I think is now coming to the forefront. And it's much like the um, Simpsons paradox is things are hidden and you're not seeing the signal from the noise. I think there's a signal happening. I'm waiting for confirmation. When I look at the S&P, it shouldn't trade, if I'm right, it shouldn't trade above the uh, early June high. On my DMARC counts, I've got a 13 and an eight. So Monday would be a nine and a 13. It would suggest it should stop around here and start following the trend of some of the banking names and these indebted companies. I'm also looking at the euro, which is exhibiting similar things. The correlation between the dollar and the stock market is pretty much at the highs now. So they're basically the same trade risk on risk, risk off. I'm very closely monitoring that because, again, I think we're in the phase where it should roll over. Yeah. And just to point to the data, uh, euro at one spot, 13, uh, and the S&P closed up today, up 1.05% to 31.85. Yeah. And so, you know, those are the things that are firmly on my radar screen. I talk about it a lot on Twitter is I think bonds are the truth almost always. And people say, well, the bond market is just being bought by the central bank. Well, A, the central bank's buying about the least amount of bonds possible right now. So there's very little quantitative easing going on. Mm. And normally, if you look at the 30-year trend of bonds, it's been a very clear trend with no obvious distortion by the central banks. I think there's an economic signal because it's backed up by what the banks are doing. Could it be that the banks are weak because, because of falling yields? Possibly, but I think it's worse because of the solvency events that I'm seeing around me.
Yeah, that talk about long-term charts that have real durability. I think the single most powerful one is the ten-year yield over you know basically since 1980. Yes, I mean I call it the chart of truth. It has been basically been the chart of my career. That has been the single best macro trade on earth, the highest risk reward of any trade in the world um, over a significant period of time. It's been magnificent, and the trend is not finished. That chart tells me. 10-year yields are going negative. And I've said this for probably the last 10 years, that 10-year yields, if we continue with the trend, are going to go negative. And it barely puts a foot wrong. It gets to the top of the trend, and then it goes all the way back down to the bottom of the trend. And the bottom of the trend this time around is, I don't know, negative 30 basis points, something like that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think, it's, I think we're about to get to that transition phase that I've been flagging for a long time. I always had June as the tipping point. So far, the market's topped in June. I'm not comfortable enough to say definitely, um, but I'm getting more confident. Yeah. You know, we obviously did Real Vision's crypto gathering uh, last week, and uh, we had on our friend Meltem Demirs from CoinShares a number of times. And I remember I interviewed her about six or eight months ago, just before we went into lockdown, and she'd been traveling in Asia. And I think it was in Thailand. She said that the the expression that was that, that Thais used all the time was same, same, but different. And when we look at these markets, when we have this conversation about the bond market, when we talk about these secular trends, it really is same, same, but different. Ash, the thing is, is these markets really haven't gone anywhere outside of the splashy names rising. We've basically got markets that are range bound still. And yes, never shorter, quiet market. And that seems to be true. But what is the range bound telling us? Is it telling us the shift in narrative and, and, the, and the economic outputs? As I'm talking about, that high frequency data is coming off as well. Or is it the pause that refreshes, which is the other way, and the kind of risk on phase continues? We'll have to see. But it's actually pretty hard, because it's frustrating for many of us, because outside of, if you're not trading Amazon and a few other names, there's not a lot going on. I yeah. think the signals, but it's not clear. Well, you know, to that point, let me ask you, what are you going to be looking for uh, to see what would suggest to you that there's been a switch in regime, a change, or a new phase? As I said, I don't want the S&P to, to go above the gene high, but that's not everything to me. I'm certainly not short the S&P. I am short um, some of the banks, um, and I think that that is more interesting. Certainly for my global macro investor clients, I haven't put that trade recommendation out for macro insiders yet because I'm waiting for the full confirmation. Um, so there is those banking names. If they start going down next week, I think that's a good enough signal for me. If the bond market, we just retested where it broke down from. If bond yields continue to fall next week, then we've got a full signal. So I, we're very close where I'm seeing this signal should be playing out. I don't think the data over the weekend on viral growth in the US is going to be great. Remember, the weekend data is always low because a lot of people don't count it. So usually by Tuesday it comes fully and you understand the severity of what's happening over the weekend. So all of this has been crammed into the window. The Fed are doing much less than they've been doing in the past, almost nothing. And the rate of change of balance sheet is actually shrinking now. And a lot of these stimuluses roll off or they're going to morph into different stimuluses that don't um, have the broad stimuli that they did before in terms of the number of people. 
looks like it'll be focused towards people going back to work, leaving all of those people out of work without stimulus. So I think the rate of change of everything is about to fall. Um, so let's wait and see. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when we talk about bank stocks, people talk about XLF a great deal, of course. And one wonders when you think about these regional banks and their core operating businesses, how banks actually make money. Who, who's doing who's doing CNI lending right now? Who wants to expand, you know, do additional CapEx in their business? Who wants to expand OpEx, right? I mean, it just it just seems to me to be such a completely dead flatline space. Well, not only that, Ash, but the loan book that you've got has deteriorated. So next week, we've got all the earnings from the banks coming out. So we'll start to get a look at that. But the loan growth has to have deteriorated massively. So if you're a bank in the middle of Omaha, well, you're dealing with hundreds or thousands of restaurants going out of business. Yeah. Small businesses, hair salon, all of this stuff, the economic pain, that's going to go into all of those regional banks because they're the ones who lend to the mum and pop businesses. So that's the... That's the real issue here. And, you know, it's a trend that we've talked about before, you and I, that difference between the people who set up, who were able to set up SaaS-based technology businesses versus those who set up brick-and-mortar-based businesses. The, yeah. the, the divergence is huge. Yeah. And also, when we talk about secular trends, uh, in the same context as the the fall in U.S. Treasury yields, we've obviously shifted over the last 40 years in a durable way uh, from a manufacturing economy to a services economy to a commercial economy. And these are businesses that are just going to get absolutely whacked when people aren't leaving the house. The Chinese economy, George Magnus uh, was on with Ed a few days ago talking about how the export component of the Chinese economy is rallying because of all of the uh, external demand, international demand for things around COVID. So masks and respirators and gloves and all of these things that are being produced in China. The US doesn't do that any longer. No. And by the way, I love George Magnus. He's like, I've known him forever. And he's just, he's just fantastic. He's so well reasoned, um, so knowledgeable, so experienced. He's just, he's just brilliant. He's one of my favorite people. Um, but yes, if you think about the services-based economy, the 2001 recession was saved by the services economy um, and consumption. The 2008 economy was saved by services because they weren't as hard hit as the real estate sector, for example. And so services are, I don't know, 70, consumption is like 70-something percent of the U.S. economy now. It's ridiculous. And most of it's debt-based. Well, here you are with the opposite, the unthinkable, a virus that decimates the services economy and leaves other parts of the economy standing. So it's not something most people were prepared for. Um, and that, you know, it's a very sad way that the death of small businesses, because that's the lifeblood of America and most places, you know, living in Spain. I mean, Spain had more bars per capita than anywhere else in the world. And there were half of them were little bars with 10 people could get in them and get a coffee and an orange juice and a, and a bocadillo 
um, or a cold beer. And those won't exist. Yeah. So much will have changed because of this. And we don't want the world to turn into just Amazon. So, you know, I hope that whatever real stimulus comes out of this in a year's time, not the kind of flashy stimulus now, but the real economic stimulus that it helps rebuild those guys and gives people loans to rebuild the businesses. I think it's good to change. I think the Darwinian nature of changing face of, of the high street and getting it away from chain stores that nobody wanted, nobody went into, that's okay. But let's reoccupy those spaces with new vibrant things for new generations and new opportunities ahead. Because that's then out of the ashes rises the phoenix and and that creative destruction cycle can begin again. Yeah, well said, Rob. Very well said. You know, it's interesting uh, in the Magnus piece, he actually drew the distinction in China as well between the uh, between the consumption side of their economy. Now, their their balance is, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but it's roughly the recipro reciprocal of the U.S. economy in terms of consumption versus uh, export. So, so, so even in China, it's a much smaller share of their economy, but there have been a significant damage to their domestic consumption-led sector as well. Yes, and that's not going to go away yet because viral outbreaks, plus global export markets, plus global travel. It's, it's not good for anybody. And, you know, I don't know when that situation is going to resolve. And people have to get their heads around the fact that this is not going to be quick. If we go back to what we talked about in the beginning, the vaccine, the magic bullet. Well, it's clear there is no magic bullet, certainly not in the next six months. Is there a magic bullet in the next 12 Possibly. Yeah. But it's far from certain. Now, what's great is they're building on the ways of scaling the manufacturing quickly. But still, we're in a world of 7 billion people. Africa has a massive viral outbreak starting. South America is off the charts now. So how are you going to roll this out everywhere? So, okay, roll it out to the United States. Fine. Then what happens to the rest of the world? What happens to global glo growth, global travel, and global consumption? Well, that doesn't pick up either, so that doesn't help. And this is the issue here is people have tried to deal with this as an isolated event per country, and it's not. It's a globalized event that affects everybody. And everybody, anybody who doesn't follow suit of the other countries just elongates how the virus goes. Right. And that's fine if they want to do that. Basically, you can take your economic pain two ways, I think. You either take it all at once or you take it over an extended period of time. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you what was interesting is Cayman did something fascinating. Is And some other countries have done this. They allowed the citizens to withdraw up to 25% of their entire pension at whatever age. So that means the government didn't have to inject massive amounts of money because don't forget, they don't have an independent central bank. So you can't print money. So they released pension assets and said, fine, then you as the public get the benefit now, but you're deferring the cost later. Right. So it gives you the opportunity to make it back. I thought that was a very interesting way of doing things. They also, all the banks agreed a, um, um, a mortgage um, freeze for between three and six months. 
those kind of things made a huge difference um, to help people get through. I'm yeah. surprised other people didn't do that. I mean, I understand that the US and most of the European pension systems bankrupt. We've talked about that in the past. But still, there, was, there should have been some opportunities for people to have drawn stuff that um, could really have supported them without the governments doing what they've done. Because we don't know the outcome of that yet either. Right. You know, talking about unknown outcomes, coming back to the interview with Dr. Majerid that uh, we're releasing on YouTube today, uh, I, I thought, you know, at the end of the interview, one of the most extraordinary things, uh, I asked him if he had some final thoughts, and I was hoping for something positive about the progress that they're making on this vaccine. And it is, I think, an overwhelmingly positive piece for a number of reasons. One, the level of complexity uh, uh, and of the research and the degree of commitment that is happening right now to solve this virus. It's literally the number one problem in the world. We have some of the smartest minds on the planet looking at finding the solution. And if you feel cynical sometimes about uh, the food fight we have down in Washington, D.C., if you feel cynical about government, it's a great interview to watch to see that there are men and women getting up every day. It doesn't matter who's in the White House, doesn't matter who's in Congress. They are going into labs, doing dangerous jobs, trying to save lives. And it is, I think, a very inspiring interview from that perspective. But at the very end, when I asked him if he had any final thoughts, uh, he said, yes, I do. You know, he'd been studying earlier coronaviruses. He'd done some academic research, I believe, on SARS, the first SARS. And he was studying MERS and actually working on a vaccine for Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. And he said to me, you know, we have had, we've known about coronaviruses since the 1960s. And we have had three significant outbreaks, SARS-1, MERS, and now COVID-19, within the last 15 years or so. These coronaviruses are jumping from species to humans more rapidly than ever before. We've had three events now in the last decade and a half. I don't believe this is going to be the last. And he said, this will pass. COVID-19 will pass. But when the spotlight fades, what worries him most, in his words, were what lurks in the shadows, the next coronavirus to jump species, the next mutation, the disease that might be deadlier, that might be more transmissible. And when you think about that, it is a truly sobering thought for what it means to human life, of course, first and foremost, but also how can the global economy, the thing that you know is the, is the vector that supports all of our ability to lead the wonderful lives we have, uh, how does that impact it? Although I also read the positive that he said is basically it was a plea for continuation of funding. Yeah. Because now people understand. And therefore, if we can get control of coronaviruses, okay, that's going to alleviate the risk of another major pandemic. Of course, there'll be another at some point from something else. That's the history of mankind. But if people are focused on it, just protocols alone, people will know what to do next time. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's still a total shit fight on who did the right thing and who didn't do the right thing. And I think the answer is, who knows? There is a price to pay, whichever way you do it. You know, people cite Sweden, say, well, they didn't do it. Well, it's not strictly true, because Swedes actually self-isolated, worked from home, did all of that, and the Swedish economy cratered. So they kept their economy open, but it's been the largest recession in history, I think, for Sweden. So that didn't help. What does help? I, I don't know, but it seems that you're going to pay the price regardless. So it's figuring out what is the best strategy 
for a globe to deal with it and not country by country. Um, and they'll figure something out, a better strategy, a better way forward that is that people understand better because, you know, we did it with the um, United Nations to try and deal with issues of genocide. Now, the United Nations is an incredibly flawed organization um, and I think it will change over time. But we need, and the WHO was there for this, but clearly we're going to have to overhaul the WHO as well because there are flaws with that too. All of these, and I've talked about this before, the old rules-based global order system is failing us and we need new ones that work for the modern world. And again, out of crisis comes change. Change is usually good because humans are very inventive and they will create new ways of creating positive change out of what was a crisis. So, you know, it makes me more bullish of the world to come if we can just face up to the truths of the world we live in. Ralph, final thoughts as we look ahead and we reflect on your thesis and what you're going to be looking at going forward. You know, I'm still looking, as I said, for this to be a longer event. I don't know about the U.S. stock market. It's too weird for me. <laughs> And it's too non-macro and it's too behavior driven and it's too flows driven for me to get a true grips of it. But I think caution still needs to be the watch card. The, the main thing we have to think about is don't get sucked into a narrative. The counter is maybe getting sucked into my narrative is wrong. So that's why I don't short the equity market generally. I look for things that will go up regardless, like bonds. And, you know, I think the dollar goes up regardless. That could be wrong. We'll see. Gold has been what most people, whatever debate we have, almost everybody comes to the realization that gold's going to do well regardless. Inflation, deflation. It's only a return to 2% GDP growth and low economic volatility would really kill off the gold bull market for now. Um, and then I've talked in the past again about crypto because I think it's hugely skewed. So I look for those kind of bets. Right. Now, if my thesis gets confirmed, then yes, I will aggressively short banks and some of the triple B names, et cetera. I'll still wear, steer well clear of credit because the central bank is buying credit, but I'm happy to buy bonds because the central bank's buying bonds. So just understanding where the risk reward lies in your favor um, don't fight the tape for sure, but look for parts of the tape that fit your narrative and you've probably got a better chance. Yeah, the more macro-based trades, the more analytic trades, the trades for which there's data and for which we can think about uh, how these correlations unfold. You know, if you're interested uh, in talking about the other side of the equation, uh, the U.S. equity market, and as you said, Raul, a flows-based approach, yesterday, Ed Harrison and Tyler Neville did uh, a piece talking about exactly that, the flow-based analysis. I thought I thought Tyler was pretty compelling uh, in his view of what it was like for an institutional trader and how some of the flows have changed uh, and what that means for liquidity and microstructure of the U.S. equity market. Yeah, exactly. And it is a complicated world. Yeah. And it's not clear whether it's fully decoupled, whether the equity market's fully decoupled from macro fundamentals or not. 
Um, or maybe that's a new paradigm we live in. I don't like to use the words, this time is different. So I'll just observe, uh, keep out of the way and leave it for others. I mean, again, be my guest, play that trend. Maybe you're right, maybe the reflation trend works. But at all time high record valuations, doesn't sound like it's the best bet. You're better off if there's a full reflation trade, buy silver instead of gold. That'll work phenomenally well, probably make 3x, 5x from doing that trade. So I look for those instead. Yeah. And the one thing I can say with absolute certainty is we will continue to watch these markets from this program and the rest of Real Vision. And I can also say with certainty that none of us know where this is all going to lead to. So regardless of my framework, I don't know. You don't know. And nor does anybody else. So, you know, it is a different world. And it's just we have to keep processing all the data as it comes and figuring out what it actually means. Yeah. Well said. Raul, thank you again for joining us. Not at all. I'm looking forward to the weekend. I've got friends coming over, which is nice. We're starting to get a bit of socializing. Um, some friends caught some Wahoo yesterday. So I've got six pounds of Wahoo, and I'm going to make a Maldivian fish curry. So fish curry from the Maldives. So it's a coconut fish curry. So I'm looking forward to that. The little island you're on sounds like a lot more fun than the one I'm on. Uh, yes and no. I've got one shop and one shop that sells booze. That's it. So there's nothing, there's not a lot to do, but it's a special place. So I can't complain. Yeah. Thanks again, Raul. Have a good weekend. See you next week, everyone. Yeah. Have a great weekend, Ash, and have a great weekend, everybody else. Stay safe out there as well, but have fun. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.